What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike and welcome into the local angle on our FanDuel TV audience. Joining us now, it is Kevin O'Connor. Of course, you know him from the mismatch beyond the arc right here on FanDuel TV. And he has an article up right now on the ringer. The Celtics can't run it back after this. KOC, thanks so much for taking some time, man. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great today, Brian. Thank you for having me on. A crazy, crazy run here for the Celtics. I'm, I'm excited to discuss with you. Yeah, we're still sort of going through the pain of what transpired in game seven and now looking into the offseason. So Jalen Brown in that game seven has the eight turnovers and just some really bad ones, KOC, that we've seen through the years where at one point he's just literally falling over and loses the ball. There was another one where he's just dribbling to his left, loses it, fast break the other way for a dunk, and it ends up being, what, 68 assists and 66 turnovers in the postseason. And the numbers with him on the court were really bad. Like the offensive rating was a 107.1. Defensive rating was a 114.9. So outscored by 7.8 per 100. And I know it's a small sample size, but with Jalen off the court, the Celtics had a plus 8.4 net rating. And one of the things we've seen with Jalen Brown through the years is he's never really shown up well in the impact metrics, right? Because he's a high turnover player and he doesn't have a lot of assists. He has been a poor three-point shooter despite the really good shooting against Atlanta earlier on in the postseason. His defense, KOC, I would argue over the past couple of years, has sort of slipped a little bit. He's not the same level of defender, and I know he had his moments against Harden, but especially off the ball, and it was very apparent in the finals last year where he just would kind of get lost. And I'm looking at this now where he qualifies for the Supermax, and if you asked me this two months ago, I would have said, yeah, give him that. He continues to get better, but now... I'm just wondering from your perspective, would you be willing to give Jalen Brown the Supermax? Like he's not, in my mind, a top 15 player in the league, even though he made all NBA. I would not give him the money. And I think if they do give him the money, that could go down as a pivotal mistake, a turning point for a franchise. You know, after nine straight years of making the postseason, six straight with Tatum and Brown, 
If you give Brown, given his limitations as a shot creator, $295 million over five years, I mean, look, I love Jalen. Like, he deserves credit for turning into the player that he has, right? Improving as a shooter, improving as a ball handler. Like, look back at the film of him playing in college at Cal. It was clunky, it was robotic. He couldn't move. He's become a, such a more fluid handler, but I think there's limitations. You know, there's a ceiling for everybody with certain skills. And with Jalen, I just don't think he's has that feel. I don't think he has the hand size or coordination as a ball handler to ever become somebody who's leading your offense. And time and time again, I, like I was thinking about this, you know, during that game seven against the Heat. There's this clip of Draymond Green talking with J.J. Redick. Like, he's saying, what lessons did you learn during the finals, right? Like, well, how did you guys adapt? And Draymond's like, well, you know, Boston was going right on drives. And then we said, you know what, let's force these guys left. And then suddenly they start dribbling the ball off their foot and losing <laughs> control. And it's like, okay, that's what happened last year during the finals. And here we are against Miami, and it's a lot of the same stuff with both Brown and Tatum in their respective ways, but especially with Brown, I just think the tough thing here for Boston is, yes, in theory, you should play hardball with Jalen Brown and try to negotiate a lower contract. Yes, that's true in theory, but you've already tried trading him for Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard, and he's already angry about that, and now you're in this position where maybe if you want to trade him, but for who? Like Damian Lillard might not be available. He's also older. So like who, like who is the obvious target? Is it going a little younger, but does that set you back? There's no clear path forward here for the Celtics. And that's the scary part. You know, when I think about their situation, there's no obvious answer with what to do. Yeah. And I don't think you can it. When you look at it in terms of the future with Jalen Brown, you can offer him anything less than the Supermax if you want to keep him because of some of the things you mentioned. And also we know that the Kevin Durant thing really upset uh, upset him because you go back to the article that Logan had where he said, Logan Murdoch from The Ringer, of course, that he had a three-way call with Brad Stevens and Jason Tatum. And at that point, I can understand where Jalen Brown is coming from, right? Where he says, well, I was probably our best player in the finals. And now, after all this, you want to trade me again. Like, you can understand years ago, the Kawhi, the Paul George, the Jimmy Butler, you can understand it at the time. But now Jalen probably looked at it as like, okay, it's me and Jason Tatum, and we were two wins away from a championship. We want to run this thing back. So if it comes to that position, I think they're going to have to move on from Jalen Brown in the offseason because if they don't want to give him the Supermax, Jalen sort of has the leverage. He'll say, no, I'm not taking anything less, right? I want the Supermax. If you don't give me the Supermax, I'm just going to go into free agency. Like The Celtics really don't have any leverage in this situation whatsoever. So that brings me to your article. One of the interesting ones you had was the Hornets and maybe something surrounded around LaMelo Ball. And LaMelo had an interesting season because, of course, he was dealing with that fractured ankle, only played in the 36 games. But I was looking at some of the stuff. He was bombing. 10.6 threes per game he took, which yeah. Joe Mazzulla would love that. Joe would be <laughs> <laughs> We're He's talking all about over it. <laughs> uh, Joe's like, okay, yeah, like, trade him now. Actually, trade Tatum and Jalen Brown if he's going to take this many threes. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding there. But the 8.4 assists, and look, he's not been in a winning situation in Charlotte. The question I would have for you on that is, A, how does that look with Tatum, the fit with LaMelo Ball? And then secondarily, 
He's been, I, I don't want to say he's been a bad defensive player, but of course he hasn't had to play high level defense. How do you think that pairing works? And do you think Tatum would accept that as sort of his second running mate after playing for all these years with Jalen Brown? I mean, I, I Tatum would have no choice but to accept it. I mean, True. that's just something you have to do as, as a superstar. If the franchise makes a change around you, you get to deal with it. Uh, like LaMelo Ball, I mean, he he's he's such an interesting player. Like that, that theoretical idea would really be contingent on the Hornets, you know, with the second pick saying, we want Scoot Henderson there. We don't like the right. fit with LaMelo. We want to move on and build a different way. Um, so theoretically, like a guy like LaMelo or LaMelo himself – with him specifically, up until last season, he was really good off ball. He was a smart, savvy cutter, a great off ball shooter off the catch. He could shoot off a movement. And so I think he would add kind of more of a variety with that offense with Boston with the ability to play off ball or run the show with high pick and roll as a guy who can attack with secondary actions. Because I think that's that's the thing. So you think about the Celtics. You think about the Clippers, the Celtics with Tatum and Brown, the Clippers with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, the the limitations of having things primarily run through wings who aren't playmakers. And I think both of these teams have fallen short in the postseason for different reasons. I mean, the Celtics went to a finals. The Clippers haven't. The Clippers have mm-hmm. dealt with major injuries to Kawhi. The Celtics haven't had that happen. So it's different reasons. But like fundamentally, that issue with the playmaking is where I think Boston needs to focus on resolving this offseason, whether or not they keep Brown. Like, if they keep Brown and Tatum together, they still need to resolve that in the backcourt, which means flipping a Brogdon or flipping a Marcus Smart and shuffling that deck in the backcourt. Because I I just think there's so many times throughout this postseason and past postseasons with Boston, it just seems like they're missing that stabilizer, um, that guy who can just settle the offense, that more traditional-style point guard, um, or somebody like like Dame who can play that role when needed or be the go-to scoring presence, you know, at the highest of levels. Like he can, he can toggle between those two. That that I mean, do you do you agree with me there with like that's kind of the the missing ingredient whether or not they keep Brown? I don't know. I'm that's the way yeah, I Yeah, and to your point, Lillard is basically one of the best pick and roll players in the NBA by yeah. the numbers. It would be a perfect fit for him to play with Jason Tatum. I guess my only question would be on the Portland side of things. Or do they want to build their team around Jalen Brown? Or are they saying, hey, we have the third pick, even if it's Brandon Miller, eventually he's going to be the number one guy and we pair him with Jalen. And then the other risk they have is, well, what if Jalen just says, I'm not going to sign with you long term? Mm-hmm. That's a risky proposition when you're giving away Lillard as well. But that type of player does make a lot of sense. That's why I am fascinated by the Lamelo idea because he profiles as that type of player. And I would agree. Tatum has done a really nice job improving as a playmaker, but he's not naturally that type of player, right? He's more in the mold that you mentioned, Kawhi Leonard, but Kevin Durant, right? Where it's like he's a great scorer. He's not a great passer. Durant's obviously a good passer, but it's not like LeBron James or anything along those lines. So that's why you would like to have that nice, steady point guard. And even a guy like Brogdon, now obviously he was dealing with all those injuries in the postseason, but... He's a driver and a shooter, He and he's not a good passer. And it, sometimes he has blinders on. He's not a willing passer. White can do a little bit of it, and then Marcus Smart is a passer. He's not really somebody that's going to threaten you as a scorer. So I do feel like that is sort of the missing piece of that team. So I would ask you also, Michael Pina suggested this one, where it's basically you swap out DeJounte Murray, a Kongwu, who we know the Celtics liked going back to that draft, and Sadiq Bey. For Jalen Brown, where you have like a traditional type of playmaker in Murray, you have a shooter in Sadiq Bay, and I know Murray's got an expiring contract coming up. And a Kongwu is almost like Rob Insurance, right? Where 
And how many times has Tatum said he likes playing with Robert Williams, like that roller? So that deal kind of got me interested too. Like that actually may be the Murray, even though he's a lesser player than Jalen, it actually may be a better fit on paper. I'm not a DeJounte Murray fan. Uh, oh, so, you're not a fan. So okay, I, I think he's a losing player, and, and I, I, <laughs> I, I would not, I would not want Dejounte Murray if I was a Celtics, you know, executive. But I could see the logic on paper, especially with Okongwu and the, you know, adding a wing. It, it makes, it makes sense in theory. Like I think, I think that type of deal construct makes sense. Like adding you know, lesser names. You know who who I like kind of add up to be closer to the value of Jalen Brown. I think that makes some sense, but I'm just not a big fan of Dejounte Murray. He's an inefficient scorer. He's a shoddy decision maker. The thing that was so puzzling is when the Spurs had both those guys, Derek White and Dejounte Murray. The people in San Antonio always felt White was the winning player, and yet Murray goes for three first round picks with Atlanta because he's like the 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 more highlight driven player, the higher quote unquote higher upside player. And yet Derek White, he leaves San Antonio. He's the guy who's improved as a three-point shooter, become a more reliant guy off the catch, a knockdown guy off the catch, a guy who's pulling up when defenders go under screens. I think Derek White, granted game seven didn't go awesome for him with Jason Tatum limited, Jalen Brown, you know, fumbling. And Derek White wasn't his best, but I think White can do a little bit more off the dribble. Granted, he's just not a primary guy. I, I mean, I like the idea. I think Boston should consider all these types of scenarios. Like they should consider the parts deals. They should at least pick up the phone and try to back channel and pull Luca out of Dallas. But you're, it's a year away. Oh, now we're <laughs> it's talking. A, it's a year away from from that ever being a thing. But you know, like I, like if I'm Boston, I'm making those offers too. I'm like, hey, we'll give you Jalen, Time Lord, and Smart, and all our future picks for Luca. What do you say, Dallas? And they hang up the phone on you. But I'm at least making that call, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm open to all those paths on the Celtics. I just don't think, I just don't think paying Jalen Brown is is gonna be of of great benefit to them, especially under the new collective bargaining agreement, unless over this next year, because it's one year before those penalties kick in. The penalties don't kick in until 2024, so they have this one year where theoretically they could go all in with Tatum and Brown and try to add other guys, but it's nearing a point that something's going to have to break up. Yeah. And look, if Luca is a possibility at some point, <laughs> as you mentioned, I mean, let's, let's just cue the duck boats right now. That would <laughs> maybe, be awesome. Yeah, no kidding. But right? you know, that, that point you make on white is a really good one because I feel like he's kind of the least demonstrative personality out of the three guards when you're talking about Marcus Brogdon. So maybe that's part of the reason that, some of these games during the season, like, you know, if Derek White isn't playing late, it's not going to be a controversy, right? And how many times this year do we say, hey, Derek White should have been on the court? Maybe that's part of what goes into that is because he's such a good teammate and he's such a good guy around the team. And I just wonder, hey, maybe if you gave him more because, hey, he was in line for the Larry Bird trophy. If he pulled off that, like mm -hmm. in the third quarter, he tried to bring them back in the game seven. Oh. I thought he was going to at some point. I'm like, just somebody else play with the guy. Somebody else hit a shot. It was. Did, didn't I it really feel like it was going to be magic for him? Didn't it seem like, oh my God, yeah. he has the game six moment and he's the only guy in game seven getting it going. It felt like, oh my God, he's it's yeah. something's happening. This is a moment. Yeah, and it felt like they waited too long to get to that because yeah. Jalen was so bad in that game and Tatum was clearly hobbled. And it felt like whenever White had a Gabe Vincent on him or whether it be Duncan, whoever they had on him, he was just going right by him. So it felt like they really found something. Unfortunately, it was too late.
So you also mentioned in the article a rotation mix-up in general. So, and we mentioned these three guards that need minutes, Smart, White, and Brogdon. In even though the Celtics, their two best players this year, were wings, it does feel like after that they were very short on the wing line, right? And so one of the guys you mentioned that intrigues me is Jeremy Grant. And I know you mentioned Kyle Kuzma as well. But Grant, he shot 40% on threes and relatively decent volume, 57 for a game in terms of the attempts. Now, in Detroit, we realized, obviously, he was overtaxed as the number one guy, the every down running back, so to speak. But he's a guy that can get you a bucket. It's not what you want him to do, but he can defend. He can shoot. It does feel like adding a wing and taking out one of those guards would make more sense for this team. Yeah, totally. I mean, like a Jeremy Grant type, Kuzma. Um, I mean, I, I just think with the Celtics, if they're able to add one, especially if they lose Grant Williams, with Grant Williams, I, I like Grant Williams, 40% shooter, solid defender, even though he wasn't as good this season as he was, as he was last season defensively. Um, if they lose him especially, they need another wing in that rotation because you can't rely on old man Danilo Gallinari coming off a leg injury to stay healthy or even be remotely effective um, this coming year. Sam Hauser, knockdown shooter, as good as he is in his role, he wasn't getting playoff minutes for a reason. Um, so I think they have to add another wing there. And Jeremy Grant, he's the type of guy who could he could play as a four next to Al Horford. He could play as a three next to Time Lord and Al Horford. He can play as a small ball five in limited minutes. Uh, I, I just think he's the type of guy who can plug and play in any type of situation. But also, like, we're talking about, like, the idea of Dame or the idea of, like, trading for the number three pick. We don't know if Jalen Brown would want to stay in Portland in those situations, but from the Portland side of things, everything that we like we're talking about with Jeremy Grant is also true for them, which is part of the reason why they're at least going to make an effort to build around Damian Lillard and try to build a, a strong contending roster around him because they have some other good pieces, including Jeremy Grant as a restricted as an unrestricted free agent this offseason. They want to bring him back. Yeah. So that one that you had in the article, and I think you talked about it with Bill on his podcast as well. It's basically Simons and the number three pick for Jalen Brown. So Jalen would go play with Damian Lillard. I'm sure Lillard would like that. But from a Celtics perspective, I can't imagine, obviously, he would have to deal with it. But Tatum would not be too happy about that, like playing with a younger player. Now, maybe Scoot Henderson ends up dropping a three and he's like the perfect fit with Jason Tatum. But from a Celtics perspective, you would have to have pretty good intel that Henderson is dropping to three, right? Because Brandon Miller, it just seemed like, okay, you're restarting this building around the two wings and you already have a guy in Jalen that's pretty established. Like you would have to know Scoot Henderson would be the third pick, right? Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't know if it'd have to be Scoot. Um, I mean, I, I, Anthony Simons, maybe he's a bit, a little bit redundant with some of the other talents the Celtics have on their roster because considering he's on a pass first player he's a score first smaller guard who's going to get picked on in the playoffs defensively so Simons I'm a little bit iffy on it's more about the value of that third pick and the type of top talent you could get with that by keeping it or you know the type of talent you could get by flipping it um so like that it's an interesting idea for Boston like even if it's not three with Portland uh if it's Houston at four like they're going to try to build their roster out like what what else could you get for number four? Um, I'm just intrigued by that path for the Celtics because I think with them, if they were to go the route like Michael Pina had with his idea with the Hawks, or if they were to go that route with getting a young player on a rookie contract, like the Celtics, they were in the Eastern Conference Finals with young players on their team. Those guys were Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. 
Uh, like Marcus Smart was really young back then too. I mean, they had a lot of young guys on those teams. That, so like it's not now those guys are the veterans who have been through it. They're grizzled. They've been to a finals, multiple Eastern Conference finals. It's not like they don't have enough talent with a young player, a rookie who can be a part of a rotation and contribute and they can still contend for the finals. Cause I think if they lose Jalen through trade, getting parts back and a young player, I I like Jalen Brown a lot, but I think you can make up over the course of the regular season. It's just a matter of in the playoffs. Do you have that second star who's good enough? But like if white can actually do a little bit more, if you know Brogdon gets back to averaging 20 points per game with a starting role like he had in Indiana, if you have Tatum taking even two shot two more shots per game, is he thrusting himself into the MVP favorite conversation? Tatum can get even better too. I I, I just just part of me that wonders if if Jalen Brown's overall production is more replaceable by committee than we think, and you kind of you know kick the can forward with another young guy who can grow into a superstar on a rookie contract, kind of putting you in the same position you were before with Tatum and Brown being young guys that were high contributors. I don't know. I, 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 it's, it's a tough situation, but I'm just no, very think, intrigued by that. I think you're onto something with that. I think you can replace what Jalen does, and especially, and I know I harp on this all the time, but if he's not showing up on the impact metrics, that kind of tells you something, right? Like he, when Tatum's off the court, they're not good when just Jalen Brown's on the court, and you need yeah. that type of guy to kind of buoy the offense. We've seen it in, even to a lesser extent. Derek White always ranks out on those numbers, right? Because of the way that he moves the ball, what he does defensively, can guard all these positions. So I think you're onto something when it comes to moving on to Jalen. It's just because, and he's a really good player, but is there another step with Jalen Brown where I look at Jason Tatum and he got better as a playmaker this year. Now, obviously the three-point percentage went down, but much better drawing fouls this year. He was much better finishing at the rim this postseason than he was last postseason. That went up by almost 10 percentage points I do think like it would behoove him to develop a little bit of a floater game a little bit of a runner game and I know that's something he worked on clearly it wasn't in the results but it's something he can get better at and another thing that we've seen is he's good in the post like all the numbers tell you he's good in the post so I think there's even Tatum is what this was his 24 year old season right so he I do think that he has another step to take when I look at Jalen I just I wonder if this is who he is. And as a finished product, that's fine. Like, he's a second-team All-NBA guy. I just would not be giving him a Supermax contract. All right, so yeah. I want to ask you about— $295 million is a lot, Brian. It's a lot of money, <laughs> lot. especially when you'd be paying the other guy over $300 million, oh. which that guy, he deserves it. Tatum, like, yeah. I would be—I'm not saying that Tatum is, you know, a top-five player in the league, but he's a top-ten guy in the league. And he, and, and he could become top-five. I think yeah. Tatum does have that upside. He, he's There's more levels to his game. Right. And you uh, like we were talking about the whole Kawhi Durant thing earlier, like those guys are much more efficient scorers than Jason Tatum. But Jason Tatum, like at this point in his career, he's been a better playmaker than those guys were at this point. And he's an outstanding rebounder yeah. and a really good defender, although I think at times in the postseason, he wasn't as good as he's been in the past. But he's an elite defender. I think the most underrated skill is his rebounding and his playmaking is better. So I believe that two years from now, we may say, I can't believe Jason Tatum was only shooting 33% from three or that Jason Tatum had these turnovers because we'll see the maturation process of the player. And that's where sometimes I think we get caught up in it is because this team has been so good early on in this sort of Tatum era. It's like, this is not how it happens. Steph Curry, what was he? 27. Kevin Durant's 28. LeBron's 27. Jordan was around that age as well. Like it's very rare. You see Tim Duncan 
year two or whatever it was. Dwayne Wade, young when he's playing with Shaq. It just ordinarily doesn't happen this way. So I'm still all in on Tatum, and I know that he was dealing with the ankle injury. I mean, that's not an excuse for the performance in Game 7, but I'm still really high on Tatum going forward. So I did want to get to Missoula because you're right. You also, you wrote that the Celtics need a new coach. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bam. (laughs) Very bluntly. So I looked at game seven and just game seven in particular, man. Tatum sat out the final four minutes and 11 seconds of the first quarter. They were outscored 14 to four. And I know he was dealing with the ankle injury. And I said on my pod after the game, I'm not a doctor, but I can't imagine sitting that long is good for the ankle. I would expect the ankle is going to swell up (laughs) if you get off it right now. I don't know this, but it feels like that would not be a good idea. And he was at the scorer's table. Like, it looked like he was going to go back in. And what we knew about the series is the Celtics were outscored by nearly 30 points per 100 possessions with Tatum off the court. They could not live in the non-Tatum, and it's just an issue they had going back to last year. In Game 7, Brogdon... Minus 15 in the seven minutes. I don't know why he played seven minutes. Like, we could clearly tell after the first three, he's the same guy he was in game five and game four. And I'm defending, like, this is an injury. Like, that's the reason. He was one of the best pull-up three-point shooters in the entire league this year. One of the best three-point shooters. So clearly he was injured. I don't know how you left him out there for seven minutes because it was obvious to me after he missed the three and he blew the layup. It's like, this guy doesn't have it. They couldn't figure out the zone again, and you had the numbers on that. The effective field goal percentage was like 43%, which would be by far the worst in the NBA. It was really bad, and there was another stretch with that zone where their three best passers, Al, Smart, and Tatum, were all on the bench at the same time. You cannot do that against the zone. Your three best passers are on the bench, and then you look at the fact that why is it when Al is on the court, why is it Al that is at the free throw line and not Jason Tatum? They found some success in what was it, game four of the series when Tatum was the guy flashing there and he was getting easy opportunities. So, and this doesn't even account for going back to why did it take you until game seven to get to the high pick and roll against Joel Embiid? It took you until game seven to get to that. You mentioned in your article too, it was obvious that the Robert Williams thing should have happened before game six because you were getting less minutes from Rob because you weren't matching the PJ Tucker minutes, whereas that was the time to play because you were not afraid of his shooting. So, it just felt like this is a really disappointing series or playoff run for Joe Mazzulla. And I look at it too, though, like he's kind of Brad's protege, right? Like he was on Brad's staff and then he would carry it over to Ime's staff. It feels like Brad has a lot invested in him. So do you think this would be a situation if they were to move on from Joe, this would be an ownership thing rather than a Brad decision? Because I have to imagine that Brad wants Joe to be the guy. It does seem like Brad wants him to be the guy. I mean, they chose Joe Mazzulla over Damon Stoudemire, who's been an assistant coach for years, who's was an NBA player, of course, for many years, and quickly got scooped up by a college midseason. Um, like that's kind of a, like an underrated storyline, at least nationally, locally. I'm not sure. Like, yeah. I'm sure you guys have talked about it, but um, that's a that's a Brad Stevens driven decision by showing belief in Joe Mazzulla. And you know what, Mazzulla could end up a good coach. He could. Yeah. I, I just, I just. Don't think he showed enough in his years, the interim, and then as then after he got hired, that he should be the guy for a team that has championship hopes. For all the reasons you mentioned, you know, never mind everything Bill Simmons was harping on with on his podcast the whole year about the lack of feel with the timeouts and the shaky rotations and all that. It's like some of the stuff I had in my article as well. It's like look at look at Miami versus Boston. Miami's defense, they're switching schemes every quarter. 
They're going to zone. They're switching. They're dropping. They're helping hard. They're doing every. They're doing so many different things on defense throughout one individual game. Never mind the whole series. Whereas Boston, they they switch a lot. Sometimes they drop. They were last in the league in playing zone this season. They were last in the league at blitzing pick and rolls. Uh, they were fourth, you know, to last in showing on pick and rolls, which is like a less aggressive than a blitz or a trap. But like they just weren't straying from what always worked. And I think the the key lesson in recent years in NBA history, especially the Bucks championship year, that year Budenholzer with the Bucks was his best year coaching that team. For a guy who over time has been had been rightfully, you know, criticized for making poor adjustments, being slow to too slow to make them. That year he's like we're going to progressively switch more and more over the course of the year to train ourselves to play this way in the postseason for the moment we need to. And they did. They win the championship. They hoist the Larry O'Brien trophy. They did it. We see that with different teams. Having We talk about versatility with players individually, but coaches need to have flexibility with the types of schemes they play. And the Celtics didn't have that flexibility on defense. What worked last year didn't work as well as it did prior. Offensively, they felt like a predictable drive and kick, drive and kick, drive and kick. Charles Barkley talked about it at halftime. They're they're taking too many threes. They're not you know playing in the mid range at much. It felt like a team that didn't have answers for the zone. It felt like the team a team that was predictable. Um, and I, I like to me that's the the big thing with Missoula. Like on top of the timeouts and the feel and the rotations and everything else. Um, I just I just don't think he's good enough right now to be the coach of a team that wants to win a championship. And maybe that's unfair for a rookie coach who didn't get to choose his own staff and was thrusted into the situation, but so what? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's a tough situation. He was only 34 years old. There yeah. is no way that he was going to get the head coaching job to begin with. If Will Hardy was here when before the EMA thing happened, he would have clearly been the guy that would have been the They win the championship be- with Will Hardy. Oh, wow. You think you th- that yeah. good? I, I think Will Hardy, what he showed in Utah is like all of those qualities that Spolstra has, that mm. flexibility with scheme, with maximizing the talents of players on his roster, adaptability, like that Utah team over the course of the year, they played so many different ways and just maximized so many different guys. I, I was blown away by what the Jazz did. Like, I think he's already one of the top 10 coaches in the league. Well, now I'm mad. Like, they shouldn't have let Danny in the fucking building for the playoffs last year. <laughs> no, yeah, right. Because Danny's watching him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Don't uh, let Danny, Danny age in the building, and then he scoops him up. Danny stole Jeez. him. I know. <laughs> Unreal. He's just, he does do a good job finding coaches. I mean, the yeah. Brad thing was a great hire at the time, and I know it fizzled out at the end, but Brad was a really good coach for a yep. number of years, and obviously the Will Hardy situation. So that's sad that you think they would have won with Will Hardy. You think they would have won it with Eme too? I don't know. I don't know. I like not as high an email as Will Hardy. I mean, it's just. I mean, I'm still. I mean, like you. There's always stuff you hear around the league, right? There's always things you hear. But like one of the things a handful of people said to me last summer, before all the email stuff happened, was man, like Will Hardy's a bad loss for Boston. And I'm like, what do you mean? You know, like you see him on the sideline and all that, and you see how active he is, and you hear he's a good assistant coach. But you hear that a lot, like, oh, this guy's a good assistant. That guy's a good assistant. But like with the Will Hardy stuff, there was like a, a handful of people I trust who were like, this guy's got it. And he's been key in their adjustments. He's he's a loud voice. He's like integral to the things that they're doing. He's a tough loss for that Udoka staff. They're going to have to fill that this coming season. 
And like then they lose Ime. <laughs> yeah. So that's with that's with Ime yes. as the head coach. People exactly. are telling you like, yes. hey, this is a yes. massive loss for the Celtics. And it's like, oh, now they yes. lost the head coach too. Uh-huh. Yes. This is I, very troublesome. I think Man, I said that on, on mismatch last year, like when Will Hardy was hired, like Vernon was like, Well, what do you know about him? Like, I don't know much except here's what some so, you know, some people said to me about him. Um so Well he was he the guy that it. was always talking to Ime, like during the game. Yes. He was the guy that was always up. He was like the only guy that got off the bench yep. and talked to Ime. So, man, what now? And you compare him to Spolstra. I mean, that is just gut-wrenching for Celtics fans. Yeah. This guy's beating the I, I Celtics he, I left think and Hardy's right. special. I do. I really think he's a special coach. All right. Well, now I'm even more depressed about the Celtics <laughs> losing. All right. So, KOC, just real quick on the on the coaching stuff. So, Monty Williams is still out there. Kenny Atkinson mm. is still out there. Like, you still have some veterans available. I think the most likely thing is that they get an established veteran assistant coach, which is something I wish they had done this year. Now, the Damon Stoudemire thing is obviously a factor, but I think you would have to get, if Joe's the guy, get him a veteran assistant that can tell him like, hey, Joe, uh, maybe mix it up a little bit in terms of the zone offense. And as you like those numbers you point out about they played the fewest amount of zone this season, that's just being way too rigid. You got to try different things. And I would even say the double big thing when Rob came back from the hamstring injury, they never went back to the double big lineup to start games. And maybe that's why he was hesitant to do it in game until game six of the Philly series. Like you got to try stuff. That's what the regular season is for. But let me give you a hypothetical here. What if there was some an idea that maybe Ty Lu would be willing to coach the Celtics? And I know there's been like at least some stuff out there about Ty Lu is unhappy with the Clippers. Is that a guy that you think that the Celtics ownership would be like, hey, if Ty Lue's available, obviously they have familiarity with Ty Lue that they would say, hey, we got to get this guy. I would trade a, a first round pick to get him. Yeah, I, I'd mm. go out and get Ty Lue. I mean, I do everything possible to get Ty Lue out of L.A. Um, like he's one of the best coaches in all of basketball. He's all of these qualities we're raving about with Spolstra. He's great at adjustments. He's great at player management, um, great at motivating guys like he is. He is the real deal as a coach. Uh, so uh, I I definitely go after Ty Lue because like the you know like like you said Monty Williams eh, you know he's iffy adjustments with Phoenix he was slow to adjust with Mikel Bridges mid year he played non shooters against Denver for two games I mean come on like I mean, people were Suns fans are screaming <laughs> about that and the coach isn't isn't seeing it because um, he's too rigid Kenny Atkinson I love I love Kenny I think Kenny is a smart coach. Um, but also, you know, things did fizzle in Brooklyn. Um, he did, he did, you know, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, granted those guys are who they are. They didn't want him in the end. So Kenny's a new outside voice. That's a risk. Frank Vogel. Eh, I mean, he's solid, but I'm not like, you know, doing cartwheels, you know, if Frank Vogel gets hired. Um, and like, if you hire any of those guys as the lead assistant to Missoula, I don't like, what does that also say? If you're bringing someone from the outside in to, to be right behind him. I don't yeah. know. That that's a bit strange there from the power dynamic there with whose voice is loudest and matters most. So I mean if it's a Ty Lu though, I mean, see you later, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough situation though for Boston. Because like those yeah. candidates are running out. Just like I mean, just like there's not a lot of, you know, realistic options that make sense for Jalen Brown. And yet we say it's a tough situation, but they've been to the nine straight postseasons. They've been to multiple conference finals. There's worse places to be. Uh, but like when the stakes are this high and you're this close to tasting championship glory, that that's where it feels like every single move you make just matters so much more. 
Yeah, Ty Lue, that, that would be an interesting fit with this mm. team because he would try yeah. a lot of stuff. I feel like we would have oh, seen yeah. Tatum at center minutes with Ty Lue at totally. points this season. Just roll out all the wings and the guards that you can possibly have. He, so that would he be did a- that. He did that with L.A. He was playing yeah. small ball a lot. He was throwing out funky lineups. Clippers fans are like, what are you doing? He's experimenting. <laughs> That's yeah, what I would he uses the regular season for. Yeah, I would love it. And like I said, I want to be fair to Joe because he's only 34. He eventually may be a really good coach. But at this particular point in time, this is a team that has aspirations to win a championship. All right, KOC. So before we let you go, are one, both, or none back next year? Joe Mazzulla and Jalen Brown. (laughs) Um, I mean, the real answer is I don't know. Uh, But like my prediction will be that one is back and it would be Jalen Brown. That'd be my. So Jalen gets the supermax. But, yeah, but I don't know. I I really don't know. It's so it's like we're on we're in late May, early June right now, right? It's the turn. The finals are just beginning, but it's still so far away from the draft. It's still so far away from the free agency that like so much can change over the next handful of weeks that it's impossible to predict. Uh, we just don't know how things are going to shake out and what possibilities will become available. The one thing, like I always think about this quote from Rich Gotham, the president of the Celtics. He said years ago in regards to when they had all those Nets picks, he's like, we are in a position to react to opportunities that present themselves. And that's what I feel like the Celtics are in a position to do with Jalen Brown, or at least try to be. They're in a position to react to situations that may present. And we just don't know what opportunities there's actually going to be yet. But there will be stuff that pops up players who are surprisingly available um, and Boston's got to be ready to make big moves because there's a lot of stake to go get Banner 18. Yeah. And I would think one player you don't want the Celtics to go after is Jordan Poole. You're not a Jordan oh, Poole guy. No. Yeah, <laughs> not, not Jordan Poole. I'll tell you what though, Jordan Poole's value, even though he's getting paid a lot of money, it's so low because he stunk so much this season for the Warriors, especially in the playoffs. I still think he'll be better. I still think he's got something to his game, but no, not Jordan Poole, especially not for Jalen Brown. <laughs> yeah. No, I just find it funny how you're always killing uh, Jordan Jordan Poole on the podcast. But he was, I mean, he was really bad. Even Steve Kerr was oh, like, yeah, awful. I'm not playing him anymore. He yeah. was bad in the playoff. <laughs> I know. Oh, I mean, who knows what could happen with the Warriors now, too. Woo. Oh, yeah. They got issues now, too, yep. with their GM, mm-hmm. Bob Myers, leaving. So, yep. yeah, maybe it's Mike Dunleavy mm-hmm. or whatever. We'll see how. What happens with Draymond Green? They have a lot of questions as well. Mm -hmm. All right, that is Kevin O'Connor from The Mismatch, host of Beyond the Arc on FanDuel TV. Article up at The Ringer. The Celtics can't run it back after this. Make sure to read that. It's a great read. KOC, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me today, Brian. It's almost time to crown an NBA champion, and FanDuel wants you to be part of the excitement because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat-first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. And I'm looking at Game 1 of the NBA Finals. I like the Nuggets on the money line, of course. They're at home, so you got to get some value on this, so I'm going to make a same-game parlay. I'll take the Nuggets on the money line, like I said. Jamal Murray, 25 points. Murray, three made threes. And Kayla Martin, two made threes. We know as Celtics fans how hot Kayla Martin is right now. So I'll take two made threes from Kayla Martin, three made threes for Murray, 25 points for Murray, and the Nuggets on the money line. That's plus 222. There is no better place to bet all the finals action than America's number one sports book. Visit fanduel.com slash pike and get a no sweat first bet up to $2,000. That's fanduel.com slash pike. 
and they have great promotions every day. It's a safe and secure app. You get paid instantly. One of the things I really like doing is the alt strikeout. So if you feel good about Chris Sale and the Red Sox winning on Thursday and you're looking for some value, you can say seven strikeouts, six strikeouts, five strikeouts, and take the Red Sox on the money line. So that's something I really enjoy doing. And you can parlay that with other pitchers ac across the sport. Throw a Kevin Gosman in there. Throw a Shane McClanahan on there on top of your money line and alt strikeout prop bet for the Red Sox. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP protects next step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org/chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. GamblingHelplineMA.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, great stuff there from KOC. Always great catching up with him. Of course, he's a very busy man, so we really appreciate him making time for us as he's getting, of course, ready for the NBA Finals. I wish the Celtics were, but unfortunately, this is where we are as Celtics fans right now. So I did have a couple of leftover thoughts from our conversation with KOC, and one of them is Derek White. So White is coming off this fantastic series against the Heat. He was plus 12, best on the team. Tatum was the only other player in the positives for the Celtics in terms of the regular guys. I'm not counting the Luke Cornets of the world, of course. And if you look at the net rating with White on the floor, so per 100 possessions, the Celtics outscored the Heat by 4.9 points. That was by far the best of the regulars. Tatum was at 2.6. Okay, they also had a 117.3 offensive rating with White on the floor and a 112.4 defensive rating. Okay, how about with White off the floor? Just a 102.7 offensive rating, best of the regulars. I guess you could say the worst of the regulars, but basically when he was off the court, the offense was at its worst. Tatum was at 104. They had a 119.4 defensive rating, a dismal 119.4 with White off the floor. So they were outscored with Derek White off the floor in this series by 16.6 points per 100 possessions. That is terrible. So that is... A 21.2 points per 100 possession swing, right? <laughs> if you look at it, that's how bad it was compared to White on the floor and off the floor. And as we told you in our conversation with KOC, that number with Jalen Brown is minus 16.2. That number with Derek White is plus 21.2. And it passes the eye test too, right? Derek White was really good in the series and Jalen Brown was really bad. White would have been the Caleb Martin story, right? Where... Everybody's talking about how great Caleb Martin was in this series, and he was. I'm not saying he wasn't. The guy was outstanding. He was way better than Jalen Brown. But if the Celtics had won the series against Miami, Derek White would have been the story. Yeah, Tatum would have been a story, but Derek White, he has the unbelievable play at the end of game six, and he was outstanding. He almost brought you back in that third quarter. He would have been the story. 
For the series, he shoots 33 of 64, 51.6%, 23 of 47 from deep, 48.9%, eight steals, nine blocks. He led the entire series in blocks, 14.3 points per game. Okay, and the question I have is what would he have done with more volume if they got to him quicker in that game seven when they realized no guard can stay in front of Derek White on that Miami team? And I know you can say, well, he had a couple of tough games against Philly earlier on in the postseason. But this is where I'm at with Derek White. The reason I bring this up is he was fifth in minutes per game in the postseason for the Celtics. He was fifth in minutes per game during the regular season for the Celtics, 28.3 minutes per game. If you take his numbers and you do a per 36, so per 36 minutes this year during the regular season, you would have had Derek White averaging 15.8 points per game, five assists per game, 3.7 rebounds per game, 1.2 blocks per game. As we've alluded to on multiple occasions, he led the NBA as a guard in terms of block shots in 0.8 steals per game. So, and you also look at the fact that his shooting has greatly improved. Like those are really good numbers per 36, right? The catch and shoot threes in the playoffs, 37 of 83, 44.6% during the regular season. This is the big jump for Derek White as a shooter. 121 of 310, 39%. If you look at his pull-up threes in the postseason, 12 of 26, small sample size, 46.2%. But it's just the fact that he's willing to take those shots. He had the confidence. And his shooting, from my perspective, is real. You don't have that level of improvement if you didn't make a change or the confidence hasn't grown immensely. So I believe this shooting with Derek White is going to continue for the remainder of his career where he's somewhere between a 38 and a 41% shooter from deep. Okay. And then if you look at the impact metrics, the Celtics with White in the court this season, 119.4 offensive rating. That was in the 89th percentile via cleaning the glass. 108.8 defensive rating. That was in the 95th percentile. So... Just to put that number into context in terms of the defensive rating, with Jaron Jackson on the floor this season, who was the defensive player of the year in the NBA, the Memphis Grizzlies had a 108.3 defensive rating. Remember, the Celtics with Derek White, a guard who was second team All-NBA, 108.8. So if you look at the Celtics with White on the court, that improvement was 6.7 points per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor defensively. That's in the 94th percentile. The Grizzlies with Jackson on the floor, That number jumps 5.5 points per 100 possessions, 90th percentile. So by the impact metrics, Derek White had a bigger impact by the numbers on the Celtics defense than Jaron Jackson did with the Grizzlies. And look, I understand the value of Jackson. He's a shot blocker and all those different type of things. Although for a guy that won the defensive player of the year, he follows guys way too much. But I'm just telling you, those are what the numbers were with Derek White on the court. The impact is through the roof with this guy. It's just worth mentioning, like if you're telling me, hey, who would you rather have as a defensive player? You obviously rather have the anchor, the big man, but it's just worth mentioning that that's the neighborhood that Derek White lived in this year, the same neighborhood where the current defensive player of the year resides. Okay, the Celtics, just with Derek White in totality on the court this season, they outscored teams by 9.3 points per 100 possessions via cleaning the glass. That was in the 93rd percentile. He's a good pick and roll ball handler. And if you just compare him to the other guards on the Celtics, Malcolm Brogdon is a liability defensively. The Celtics were 2.1 points per 100 possessions worse with him on the court. That was in the 32nd percentile. He's a bad defensive player. Overall, if you look at those numbers, minus 5.2 in terms of per 100 possessions in general, in terms of with Malcolm Brogdon on the court, they were 5.2 points per 100 possessions worse. That was in the 26th percentile. And we know he ranked in the 18th percentile as an isolation defender. Okay, so 
Brogdon has a clear weakness. He's not a good defensive player at this stage in his career, does not move well laterally. Marcus Smart, love what he's done for the organization, but he's now entering his 29-year-old season next year. His defense slipped last year. I mean, it's crazy to think about this, but Marcus Smart was in the 15th percentile as an isolation defender. Now, he got better in the postseason, but he gave up 1.13 points per 100 possessions with him as the ISO guy. That should never be the case with a guy of Marcus Smart's magnitude in terms of what he's been as a defender in this league. And you just wonder, is he at the point where there's a lot of mileage, he's played a lot of hard minutes throughout his career, are we at the point where he's just never going to be the same defender he was when he won the Defensive Player of the Year? Is the slippage really there? It's also his third straight season shooting less than 35% from three. And Smart also, unlike Derek White, who played in all 82 games, is not a durable player. He played in just 61 games this past season. Okay, so the reason I'm bringing all this up, we understand that the biggest question marks with the Celtics, the futures of Jalen Brown and Joe Missoula, right? Those are the big picture questions with this team, as we talked about with KOC. But to me, one of the guards, not named Derek White, needs to go. And adding a wing, I would love that. The idea that we that KOC had in terms of a Jeremy Grant type or a Kyle Kuzma type, I would love that. Some additional scoring on the wing, some depth at the wing line. And in the case of Jeremy Grant, a real defender on the wing line as well. But part of the reason I say that is Derek White, is a superior player to both Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon at this point. He has the fewest flaws. And right now, I don't even know what the flaw is in Derek White's game. Now, don't go crazy. I'm not saying like Derek White is this top 10 player in the league or top 15 player in the league or is an all-star level player. I'm just saying he doesn't have flaws. Malcolm Brogdon has real flaws in terms of he has a liability defensively. He has blinders on the offensive side. He's not a great passer. Marcus Smart has never been a good shooter. Marcus Smart is not the same defender anymore. So he has flaws. Malcolm Brogdon really doesn't have flaws. He also has a nice floater game. 46% this past season on short mid-rangers. Those are floaters and runners. That's a really good number. So he has that teardrop. And I just think for a rookie head coach in Joe Missoula, it was tough this year when you have Smart and Brogdon who are big personalities, right? White isn't a big personality, but he's the better player. So he's the guy that would be the least affected by losing minutes, so to speak. And sort of when I look at it going forward, I think an underrated priority for the Celtics team is Derek White should be in the top three in minutes per game for this team next season. So the reason I say one of those guards has to go, I think that's how you create those minutes where you don't have to please smart Malcolm Brogdon and White. Now, I'm not saying the Malcolm Brogdon move was a mistake. He was the sixth man of the year. I'm just saying it feels like one of those guys is going to need to go where White does finish in the top three in minutes per game for this team next season because he brings so much value to this team when he's on the court defensively and offensively, right? And the other thing I would look at is this. With Robert Williams, Jason Tatum, and Derek White on the court together this season, that trio, 122.3 offensive rating, 100.2 defensive rating. They outscore teams by north of 22 points per 100 possessions with that trio on the court together. That was the second best unit in the NBA for any three-man unit. That's the second best in the entire NBA. So I want more of that because you have really good scoring with Jason Tatum. He's improved as a playmaker. You have a lob threat with Robert Williams. And we know Derek White can run a pick and roll as well. He can take some of the playmaking duties away from Tatum when it comes to that. And also, he can space the floor as a shooter now because the catch and shoot numbers are really good for Derek White. So I just want to see this team 
invest more in Derek White. And I'm not talking about like contractually. He has a really good contract, right? Where it's 17.6 and 18.8 over the next two seasons. I'm not saying you need to invest more in him because he's under contract for the next two years. But I just think they have to realize how good this player is and play him more minutes. And I would even say like Derek White would be a bigger loss. Like in terms of if you look at the, and I'm not saying as players, but if you look at the Jalen Brown situation, you're going to get a bigger return for Jalen because of his status in the league all-star player, second-team All-NBA, Derek White, he's under a really good contract, and I just think he's imperative for the future of this team, and I would be doing everything I can to make sure he gets more minutes this year, and the easiest way to do that is to take one of the guards you have currently and ship them away in some sort of trade. Okay, I also wanted to get to this. So we talked to KOC briefly about the possibility of Jalen being traded for Portland in the other deal, not the Damian Lillard deal, but the Simons deal and the number three pick being the main pieces coming back to the Celtics. So this one is really interesting to me, right? Because it makes a lot of sense from Portland's perspective to want Jalen Brown, right? They've been looking for an elite wing player for years to go along with Damian Lillard and you get Jalen Brown. So that would make a lot of sense. Now, one of the concerns that I referenced when we had the conversation with KOC is the age gap between Tatum and Scoot Henderson. Tatum is 25 and Scoot's going to be 19. Because if I'm the Celtics, I do not even consider this deal unless I'm getting Scoot Henderson. Because Scoot Henderson plays a position that complements Jason Tatum more where he's a point guard. He's a dynamic scorer there. So if it's Brandon Miller, I don't want him. There's obviously issues off the court with Brandon Miller as well. But if you know that Scoot Henderson is going to be there at three, or you know there's a way to guarantee you move up to whatever it is, you know that you're getting Scoot Henderson, right? I don't want to get caught in the weeds too much about the draft process. But if you know that is the deal, this is really intriguing to me because Tatum is still going to have enough around him next year to have a high seed in the East. And remember, the Celtics, as we've mentioned, they were better with Jalen Brown off the court this season, okay? Slightly better offensively, way better defensively. So we've seen this before, like Tatum with a bunch of role players, high-level role players will produce good offense. This will still be a top four, top three seed in the Eastern Conference, even if you lose Jalen Brown and you're still waiting on the development of Scoot Henderson, right? But we've seen this before in the NBA. So think about this. Shaq left to go to Orlando for contractual reasons, right? Remember, they wouldn't give him the money that he wanted, and he ends up going to the Lakers. Okay, so it's a different scenario in terms of what actually happened. But remember, he left a co-star in Penny Hardaway, a guy that he went to the finals with two years prior because the next year, of course, Shaq and company, they lost to the Bulls. But the previous year, they lost to the Houston Rockets in the NBA finals, and they beat the Bulls in the playoffs. Now, Penny Hardaway was my favorite player growing up. I had the Penny Hardaway jersey. Those Magic jerseys were unreal. I don't know why they switched to some of the crap jerseys they have now. Anyway, I don't want to go into a digression about the Magic jerseys. But anyway, if you look at it, I believe him and Grant Hill, Bill Walton, of course, those are like the three guys that were hurt the most in NBA history by injuries. I know other guys got hurt, but Grant Hill had the potential to be a top 10 guy in the history of the league. That's how good Grant Hill was, right? But anyway... The injuries did happen for Penny Hardaway. That's just a reality. So first season post-Shaq, 59 games. Second season, 19 games. Next season, 50 games. Next season, 60 games. And those were in Phoenix. So he was already out of Orlando. So by the 99-2000 season, he was already in Phoenix. So maybe a healthy Penny. They win a title, him and Shaq. But you still had to deal with those Jordan teams. And Penny was started to get banged up right after Shaq left. So Shaq and those Lakers teams, they built up some calluses and they develop a young Kobe Bryant. 
And Kobe was better for Shaq's future. Obviously, Kobe ended up being one of the greatest players in the history of the league. And you could not have predicted the injuries with Penny Hardaway, but the reality is it did happen. Those injuries did happen. And it was right for Shaq to go to L.A., not just because it was the Lakers, but it worked out because of the draft pick of Kobe Bryant and the injuries to Penny Hardaway on the other side, right? So that ended up being, okay, the gap between Kobe Bryant and Shaq was relatively wide, but it made sense in the long run for Shaq to make that deal. Obviously, it turns out at the time they had like two of the best three players in the NBA to go along with Tim Duncan, right? But it took a little bit for Kobe to get there. Remember, he was playing his first couple of games against Utah in the playoffs and airballing shots, but I just look at the Celtics team, and if you say, hey, the ceiling for Jalen Brown is somewhere between the 15th and the 20th best player in the NBA, that's where I'm at, and he has these flaws as a ball handler, and he's not the best defender anymore, and he's not the most committed defensive player anymore, loses guys on screens left and right, and you know you can guarantee yourself, if you're Brad Stevens in that front office, you're getting Scoot Henderson. Tatum, we know, is going to sign the Supermax. That will happen. He's not passing up at the Supermax opportunity, right? Nobody does. But Scoot is, if it was a different year, this guy's going number one in the draft, right? If you don't have, like, one of the greatest prospects in the history in the NBA, in Victor Wembanyama, he's going number one. And you don't need Scoot to be the best player on your team. You need Scoot in the future to be the second best player on your team alongside Jason Tatum. And I love the fact that Scoot Henderson is already working out with Steph Curry. Like, that's really smart. You're working out with one of the best guards in the history of the NBA. And look, I'm not a draft expert like KOC is, like J. Kyle Mann is, or like Rosillo is, right? But I just look at it this way. If I'm the Celtics and I believe the ceiling with Scoot Henderson is a top 10 player in the NBA, I already know that Jason Tatum is a top 10 player in the NBA and has the potential to be a top five player in the NBA. I just look at it, and Tatum is going to be entering his 25-year-old season, not his 29-year-old season or 30-year-old season. I would really have to consider this because all the things we've talked about, additional playmaking around Tatum, a guy that can handle the ball, this is what Scoot Henderson is as a player. So that trade, the more and more I think about it after the conversation with KOC, and I know Bill, of course, brought it up originally on his podcast, the more and more I think about it, the more and more it makes sense because of Tatum's age and because the fit with an elite level point guard. Now you have to be super confident in your evaluation of the player if you're Brad Stevens and you're that front office, but that fit makes a lot more sense than the Jalen Brown fit with Jason Tatum. Okay, one other thing on Tatum. So I've told you guys multiple times that I believe Tatum should be compared to Kawhi and Kevin Durant. And Tatum as... I alluded to earlier with KOC, he's not as efficient as those guys. Durant, in his 24-year-old season, posted a 50-40-90 season. Kawhi's 24-year-old season, he was at 50.6% from the floor, 44.3% from three, almost got to 50-40-90. He was 87% from the free throw line. Tatum's 24-year-old season, 46.6% from the field, 35% from deep. So, And that 35% from deep is, of course, below average in the NBA of 36%. But Tatum in that season, 8.8 rebounds, Durant at 7.9, Kawhi at 6.8. Tatum at 4.6 assists, Durant same 4.6 assists, Kawhi 2.6 assists. And if you look at the playoff resumes up until that point, 10.5 rebounds for Tatum this past season. Durant has never averaged 10. Tatum has now done it twice. Kawhi's never done it. Durant one postseason north of six assists. Tatum has already done that. And I don't count two years ago where Durant was over six assists, but he only played in four games and he was swept. You got to play at least 10 games for me to count that. But anyway, same thing for 
Kawhi Leonard, if you look at it, he's never averaged north of six assists per game in the postseason either. So the reason I bring this up is if you look at Kawhi Leonard and if you look at Kevin Durant's 25-year-old seasons, which Jason Tatum just turned 25, so next season will be his 25-year-old season. Those seasons for Durant and Kawhi Leonard were their best MVP finishes. So Durant, of course, won it in 2015, the famous speech, you're the real MVP to his mother. He averaged 32 points per game, career high, led the NBA. Kawhi Leonard finished third in his 25-year-old season in 2017 behind Russell Westbrook and James Harden. I thought he was the best player in the league this that year because of his defense, and I would have had him over Russell Westbrook for sure, and I probably would have had him over Harden as well if I actually am, not that I have an MVP vote now, but I would have had him over both those guys. But I understand why people went with Harden. I think the Russell Westbrook thing was a fucking joke because of all the triple doubles. That's the reason he got that. I mean, the numbers were not great with him on the floor. Like, Harden was an initiator of great offense. Kawhi was an initiator of great offense and great defense. But anyway, I don't want to relitigate that MVP award, but that was Kawhi's best finish in terms of the MVP. So Tatum is now entering that 25-year-old season, the same season that Durant won MVP and Kawhi finished third. So Tatum's jump this year was at the free throw line, up from 6.2 attempts per game to 8.4. So he's getting himself almost two extra points per game at the free throw line because he's drawing more fouls this year. The playmaking is good. It's not great, but he's a good playmaker for his position. Tatum is, as we've seen, as the every down guy where he's the main piece of the offense, which has really happened over the past two years. He's not a great three-point shooter. 35.3% from deep two years ago, 35% this year. And if you look at the pull-up numbers from three over the past two seasons, 232 of 740, which is 31.4%. So those numbers are bad in terms of his pull-up shots, right? And if you just look and you juxtapose the shot selection that he has compared to Durant and Kawhi, Durant on short mid-rangers, 60% in Brooklyn, 53% in Phoenix via cleaning the glass, 57% on long mid-rangers, and 58% in Phoenix. Kawhi this past season, 54% on short mid-rangers, 48% on long mid-rangers. Tatum in those areas, the short mid-range and the long mid-range, 41% and 38%. So significantly down from where Kawhi and Durant's are at, who are very efficient scorers, unlike Jason Tatum. Now, Tatum took just 27% of his shots in the short and long mid-range, mid-rangers in general, via cleaning the glass. Durant, that number was at 63%. Kawhi, that number was at 53%, okay? So I don't want Tatum to go crazy and just, like, get rid of the three. Like, I think that Durant doesn't take enough threes because he's clearly a good enough shooter where it's like, it could just take some more threes, right? I think that actually hurts Phoenix at times, especially in the postseason, where at times they were losing the math game. But I do think that that number from Tatum, in terms of the short and long mid range, should be higher than 27%. And so if I look at it, Tatum's three-point shooting has gotten higher as the percentage has gone down. So he's taking more threes. 40% of his shots came from three this year. Two years ago, is at 38%. So the number in terms of the frequency of three-point shots he's taking is actually going up as his three-point shooting in terms of the percentage is going down. Now, his finishing got better this year, especially in the postseason where it jumped about 10 percentage points. But I just, and by finishing, I mean his shooting percentage at the rim was about 70% in the postseason compared to 60% last year. But I just feel like with Tatum, and the reason I referenced the short and the mid-range with Kawhi and Durant, those are their go-to spots, right? Where they know, hey, with Durant, I'm taller than you. I'm just going to get to the spot and shoot over you. And the same with Kawhi Leonard, big player, I know I can get to my shot and I'm strong enough to sort of give you a little shove, get you off me and I can hit that mid-ranger. 
With Jason Tatum, I just feel like he needs to find that spot on the floor where if you look at it in terms of the post-ups, just 20 possessions in the postseason, but he scored 27 points on those 20 possessions. That's 1.35 points per possession. He was 8 of 13, and I know that's a low number, but it was in the 88th percentile. If you go back to the regular season in terms of his post-ups, 104 possessions, 127 points. That's 1.22 points per possession. He was 40 of 72, 55.6%. That's in the 94th percentile. So this guy was an elite player in the post when he actually went down there. And he's really good sort of bullying smaller defenders. And he obviously has put on weight over the past couple of years, probably going to put on a couple more pounds this offseason. But I just look at it. If you want to make that 25-year-old jump, and Tatum has finished, what, fourth in the MVP voting two consecutive seasons. But where Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant were clearly, and Durant was at 24 as well, but clearly one of the top three players in the NBA like Kawhi and Durant were in their 25-year-old seasons. This, to me, is the next step for Tatum. He needs to find something where he knows he can get to it consistently because I give him a shit ton of credit. The free throw shooting was huge this year, getting to the free throw line more. The improvement as a playmaker is outstanding. I reference this guy is one of the best rebounders in the league. He does so many things well. But it's just, can you give me that one place you get to? Even a guy like Paul Pierce, right? He always could get, just get to the elbow. If Tatum can just identify that one spot on the floor that he can get to, it's going to take him from being a really good player, a top 10 player, to unquestionably a top five player in the league. He's just one step away from it. And what we've seen, 25, that's sort of when we find out who you are as a player. And I really think that Tatum has already proven to us he's an elite player in this league. It's one more step. So I'm interested to see... What he does in terms of going into the lab this offseason, is it being better in terms of having a runner, having a floater? Because that's something his skills coach, Drew Hanlon, told us he worked on last year. Is it just, hey, let me take a couple more mid-rangers, even though the analytics don't love the mid-rangers, but it's just a shot I know I can get to, and that's going to help me when I get to the postseason. Or is it just, hey, you know what, I'm going to start posting up more. So they got to figure out, or Tatum in particular, figure out one thing where he can just be better at that, because that's where Durant and Kawhi separate themselves as scorers from Tatum as they have those spots on the floor they know they can get to and they can be efficient in those areas and right now unfortunately Jason Tatum doesn't have that in his arsenal all right coming up next do you want to get to a couple of your calls I'm sure you guys got some afterthoughts after or leftover thoughts from game seven and of course looking into the future of the organization as well with the Celtics so we'll do that next Welcome back into Off the Pike. So let's do this. We'll take a call and we'll get to some emails as well. So that phone number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian. Joe from West Virginia. Didn't quite turn out the way we wanted it to. I, I wanted to call you after the game last night, but I was so fucking pissed off. I don't think I would have been able to make a coherent thought. So anyways, a, a day removed from it all. Geez, after it was all over and said and done, I wasn't sure if I would have rather seen them go out in a sweep or end up this way. But, you know, had they gone out in a sweep, would have never got to see Derek White shot and what have you. So I guess it was better off ending this way. And, I mean, I got to give it up to Miami. They had already had their hearts ripped out of them, and they came back and won. And, you know, it's too bad for Jason. Tatum that early in the game to roll his ankle. And I was hoping some of the other seeds could have maybe stepped up because he had got him to that point. And, you know, do me a favor, you know, Jalen Brown, go, go over the summer and work on your dribbling. You know, take a couple of assistant coaches, whatever, and put some pads on trying to slap the ball out of your hands or whatever. But you need to you need to clean that up because those turnovers, I'll tell you, that was just as much helping as Miami as it was hurting the seas. So, you know, and I like Jalen Brown. You know, and honestly, I don't want to see them blow it up. I think they've been that close. You know, just I, I think you got to stay the course. 
Joe Mazzola was coaching against guys who had 45 years of coaching experience between Quinn Snyder, Doc, Doc Rivers, now unemployed, and, of course, Eric Spolster, who's probably top, top-notch top coach, maybe, out of all the coaches in the NBA right now. So, I, you know, granted, we knew Joe probably wasn't going to be the next Red Hour back to come down the pike. So I'm willing to stay with the guy and go from there. Brian, got a, I tell you, I loved your coverage of the C's all season long. And like we said, you know, we would have liked to see it turn out differently for them. But I, I feel you got to stay the course with them at this point. Anyways, all right, Brian, I'll uh, be looking forward now to the Red Sox talk. All right, talk to you later, buddy. Bye-bye. Joe, thank you so much for the call. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the kind words as well. Yeah, so a lot of meat on the bone there. And yeah, we will be getting into the Red Sox a lot more as now the Celtics season is over. The Red Sox, by the way, I was looking at it this morning. They're 29th in defensive runs saved. Uh, it's not particularly good. But anyway, getting we have plenty of time to talk about the Red Sox. Getting back to your thoughts on the Celtics. With Jalen Brown in terms of the ball handling, it would be nice if he could improve there, but he's now entering his 27-year-old season. I just don't think it's ever going to happen for Jalen Brown. You're never going to be able to trust this guy as a ball handler, and that's why the whole Supermax part of this makes it really difficult for me. I would feel really uncomfortable giving Jalen Brown that money because we've seen his flaws, and I get it. He's a really good player. He's a really good shot maker, but I just wonder that Paying him the Supermax rather than filling this roster out more so around Jason Tatum's skill set if you shouldn't go a different direction at this particular point in time. That's where I'm at. I feel like, and I've never been a split up the Tatum-Brown situation. I've been defending it for years, but based on the contractual commitment that you're going to have to make to a guy in Jalen Brown that we know the team over the past couple years with him off the court is better than him on the court, and he cannot carry the offense when Tatum's off the court, right? Like, it would be nice if you could just say, hey, like the Harden-Chris Paul thing, and I get it, those guys never won a championship together, but if James Harden sits, Chris Paul can run the offense and run a very efficient offense when he was playing there in Houston, and you could say the same thing about Kevin Durant and Steph Curry in Golden State, or LeBron and Dwayne Wade in Miami. Jalen Brown cannot run an efficient offense as the main guy. Like he needs more help and some of the deficiencies on the defensive end of the floor as well. I just don't look at it from this perspective at this point and say, I want to give Jalen Brown a supermax. And I know you can say, hey, Brian, you're being overreactionary to what just happened, but I've seen this now for two years with the guy. And Jason Tatum, we all know he's the far superior player. I've seen for two years in a row, Jalen Brown's turnover issues are a major issue in the postseason. Jason Tatum's were two years ago, not this year. Jason Tatum's over, what, 100 assists in the postseason. So I would just think long and hard about the future of Jalen Brown. And look, the, the difficult part for the Celtics is they're in a spot where it's like, okay, we're either giving this guy a supermax or we're trading him. What is the return going to be? That's the difficult situation here. So you have to gauge basically the landscape of the league right before you make this decision on Jalen to say, hey, what could we get for Jalen? You have to find out what teams are willing to offer for Jalen before you offer the Supermax, right? So it just, they're in a really tough spot when it comes to this. And even if Jalen does get the Supermax, what tells you that he's not going to be upset two years from now? Because what we've seen, Jalen Brown has already had some, and I totally understand where he's coming from with this, some frustration with the organization based on the Kevin Durant trade rumors. Like those are some... The quotes that he gave to Logan Murdoch, and go back and read that if you didn't at the time, his article in The Ringer, those are some really interesting comments about his future with the organization and his future with the team. So I just feel like the Celtics, I mean, this is an awfully difficult situation they're in, and I just, I'm not comfortable giving him the Supermax. I'm really not. 
All right, so if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can, 617-396-7172. You can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com, and that is where we bring in our producer, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what is going on, my friend? I'm doing good, Brian. Doing better than expected, actually. Couple days. Yeah. You're over it at this point. Well, I think the thing is there's a lot of room for optimism potential this team. It's not like the end of the road. Like there's You uh, still have Tatum, right? I mean, you still have yeah, Jason they're Tatum. Young. They're young. And KOC's telling us that, hey, I'm calling up the Mavs about Luca. And I know he said that's like <laughs> a, that's like a dream, but man. Luca. Luca and Tatum's together. Jeez. Let's go. Let's get let's it going. Go. All right, let's get to some of these emails, man. Yeah, emails. Lots of trade discussion. Um, this one is from Neil in Chicago. Neil writes, I was very intrigued by the Jalen for Murray Okongwu Bay trade that you suggested. You have excellent points supporting it, but why would Smart have to go too? He has a great contract, and he's still the heart and soul of this team. I think he played hurt this year. I don't see him going for Defensive Player of the Year to a mediocre overnight. I think he'll be fine next year. I think you could pair Murray and Smart a bunch, and it would be perfect. Imagine that defensive backcourt. Smart is nowhere near as dominant, uh, ball dominant as Trey Young, so I think they could co- coexist just fine. Why couldn't the starting lineup be Smart, White, Murray, Tatum, and Horford? Murray is an inch shorter than Jalen, but has a crazy wingspan. I agree he would fit in right with the switch everything defense that we've been playing for years. Um, then he goes on to write, Brogdon is the odd man out in your opinion, which goes to your point that someone needs to go in the backcourt. He's too one-dimensional, and I think we lucked out on the injury front with him. He's overdue to miss 30 games a year with some dumb injury. Got to keep smart, or am I missing something? All right, so this is interesting to me. And let me be clear. Like, when I said smart needs to go, I didn't mean go to Atlanta in the trade. Jalen would be the only piece going to Atlanta in that hypothetical trade. And I know KOC is not the biggest Murray fan. I do like Murray. I think Murray's a good player. KOC's not a fan, and... Look, obviously, KOC knows the league really well, but I do like Murray as a player. I just look at it from this perspective. So now you still would have the same problem, even if you get rid of one of the guards, right? Like, so if you get rid of just Brogdon, you're still going to have an issue having smart, white, and DeJounte Murray, right? Where it feels like that may be too many mouths to feed in terms of the guard line, where smart is going to need those minutes, right? When you look at Brogdon, you could still have Brogdon in the same position that he's been over the past few years where, or the past year, I should say, where he's coming off the bench. I just feel like whatever, and this is getting back to the point I made after KOC, I just feel like White needs more minutes. So that's why I think one of those two guys, Smart or Brogdon, has to be out of the equation. And I also wonder this too, Jamie, from the Smart thing, is I think back to the Belichick cliche, right? Get get rid of a guy a year too early rather than a yeah, year too late. True. I wonder what the value for Smart is going to be after next year, right? Because what we saw, he was dealing with injuries this year, and I totally understand that, but this is what happens. When you get older and you're a smaller guard, you tend to pile up these injuries, and Smart has never been the most durable player. We know that he's never going to be a good shooter, and look, it feels like I'm taking shots at Smart. I love him as a player. I love what he's done for the organization, but I just feel like if you're going to cash in on Smart, this may be the time to do it. When he's coming off a season where he wasn't as good as a defender, but he sort of found some of that in the postseason. Right. I just feel like if you're going to get value, if Smart has another season next year like he did this year, and he's going into his 30-year-old season, you're not going to get the same in return. That's why I feel like if you're going to move on from Smart, this is the year to do it. Yeah, you could be right about that. I mean, he plays such a physical game. He's going to wear down in his 30s, you feel like. but And he played 61 games. Yeah, He only played 61 games this year. White's playing 82. Oh, for sure. 
But uh, sentimentally, I want to win with Smart. But I know you can't think like that. Um, this is from Michael Breen. No relation, he says. He writes, Bang! <laughs> I would hate to see Smart go. He's been one of my favorite Celtics ever. And I've always, always sided with keeping him when the annual trade rumors pop up. But I think this core, Tatum, Brown, and Smart, is who it is and has reached its ceiling. Sometimes everyone needs a chain of scenery. So I'm going to throw out two possible trade destinations for Smart without naming the pieces you would get in return because both have plenty of assets to make the numbers work. Um, He writes, Houston, it's no coincidence that Smart is arguably his best professional season under Ime. I never got the sense that Marcus, while he appears to like Missoula, actually respected him as a coach. And then he also mentions San Antonio. Marcus has a pretty good rapport with Popovich after the U.S. team. Spurs should be looking to add some veteran leadership around Webinyana. And then he writes, I think the the Brown trade is a lot tougher than folks think because it's hard to get equal value back, which we've we've discussed as well. Yeah. And And then he writes just about the Atlanta trade. He doesn't think the Atlanta Hawks would make that trade, which we've also heard some people say. But back to the... I think they would. I think Atlanta would because Jalen's a superior player to anybody that on mm-hmm. paper, like if you're just comparing the players, he's the best player. I think Atlanta would. And that's a cleaner fit for yeah. Trey Young to have Jalen Brown there. And look, there's a lot of different possibilities that could happen. I'm not saying that I would definitely pull the trigger on that one right away. I want to see what the other deals are. The other offers are out there sure. for Jalen Brown. But in terms of those smart destinations, he is from Texas. So it does it does make sense that those teams would be appealing in terms of just like where he's going to play. But the one question I'd have about it is, can you imagine Smart in a losing situation? And look, maybe when Bignana comes right into the league and he's like a top 10 player, we rarely see that in the league, but this is, as advertised, the best prospect since LeBron James. Houston is interesting because A, the EMA connection, and B, they have a ton of cap space. And we've heard the James Harden stuff, but are they going to be on the market for other players where Smart looks at that situation? Not that he has a choice, right? But if you if you look at that situation in Houston and you say, oh, well, now we've got a couple of veteran players. Smart goes in there and we're trying to win. Like we're trying to contend. The Spurs are going to keep it relatively young. Like the other guy that comes to mind and maybe the Lakers just end up matching anything that he gets. But Austin Reeves, like these teams are going to be giving Austin Reeves big money based on what he did in the postseason. And you say, Harden, Austin Reeves, and Marcus Smart. You get a couple of these young guys, the Jalen Greens of the world, right, who I don't love as a player. The guy's shot selection is horrible. But Jabari Smith, who's a good shooter at that four-slash-five position, like you could convince yourself, Marcus Smart, there, hey, Mm -hmm. we got a playoff team. We have a chance. So that's why the Houston situation, at least for the near future, makes more sense to me. But, and look, I I couldn't, I don't see like Popovich being against that. And that's a good point. He coached him in Team USA and a defensive presence, a defensive leader to help young guys along. I mean, that would certainly help. But I think that Smart would be happier in the Houston situation than he would in the San Antonio situation. Yeah, I think you're right. Houston's interesting, though, because if Smart is like, can you pry? And I know I just mentioned Jabari Smith, but can you pry a Jabari Smith like in some sort of deal? I can't imagine Houston's giving up on a guy they took high in the draft lottery for Marcus Smart. But it, if there's more things included in that package, that's one I'll have to think about more. But those are interesting destinations for Smart. They are. And this is um, this is another trade idea. This is from Zach and Saugus that I think is interesting and haven't really been talked about yet. He, he writes, Hi, Brian, love the pod uh, for the Celtics this offseason. While everyone wants to get depth or a new coach, I think they need a new low post option. 
While Tatum and Brown and others aren't hitting threes, their offense dries up and they can't score. It's a big man's league again, and the Celtics are falling behind. What do the other teams of the conference finals all have in common? They have big men who can score in the low post and create some offense from there. I love Allen Rob, but they can't do that consistently. Some options via trade would be Aiden in Phoenix or Sengen in Houston. Another Houston thing. Uh, the ultimate deal for Boston would be for Brad to somehow pull off a trade, sending Brown to Sacramento for Sabonis and Keegan Murray. I love JB, but the performance is not the one to have in Game 7, and it might be time for a change. While you might lose some defense, you can run your entire offense through Sabonis and Tatum and others. Don't need to check up threes and stand around and watch. Uh, what do you think of that, Brian? Hmm, That's interesting. Now, from the Sacramento angle, Sabonis was not great in the postseason, no. and he was exposed yeah. defensively. And during the regular season, though, they had the best offense in the NBA, and they run their whole offense around that dribble handoff game with Savonis. So would they be willing to shake it up that much? Like Jalen Brown, that'd be a great fit for them because they were not a good defensive team, although Jalen is not coming off a great defensive season. But just having that wing presence, and are they really going to give up on Murray after one year for Jalen Brown? That seems like... They really like Sabonis there, and Sabonis has been a really good player for them. Like, if you asked me about this trade before the season, like when Sabonis, I, I, yeah, I've never been big on Sabonis, but after what we found out this year, like during the regular season, this guy can be one of the main initiators of a really good offense. So I don't know if Sacramento would be willing to do that, especially knowing what the contractual obligation is going to be for Jalen in the future. You would have to know that he's going to sign with you, and would you be sure that Jalen is going to sign in a tiny market? In Sacramento, it just doesn't feel like that's the right move. Uh, in terms of the low post stuff, I don't think that's what I don't think what they're missing is like a guy that can score in the post. How many teams? I know he references the conference uh, conference finals when you have the Jokic's of the world, but how many teams are really playing through a big man in the post? Right? It's not like the Lakers weren't really doing that either. Anthony Davis is a role man. You don't post Anthony Davis up, and even the Heat they don't post up Bam. Bam gets the ball on the move. Bam gets the run, the ball. He has that fake dribble handoff that he does, right? He gets the ball on lobs. It's not like, I, I don't remember the Heat saying, hey, Bam, get to the low block and we post you up. So I don't think that's what the Celtics are missing. I understand the idea of it. My solution would be use Jason Tatum in the post more. Mm. This guy's a legit bona fide post player. I just wish they would sort of dig into that more. Oh, and the DeAndre Ayton part? No. No. I want no part of Aiden, okay? Sabonis, Sabonis is a good player. He's tough and all that, although he's a T-Rex. He has a negative wingspan, which you rarely see in the NBA. He's, the guy's got a legitimate bona fide T-Rex arm situation going on where he has a negative wingspan. Very rare for an NBA player to have a negative wingspan. Desmond Bain of the Memphis Grizzlies has one too. Kelly Olenek had one. Remember our old friend Kelly. So, But anyway, he's a tough player. He's a gutsy player, and he plays hard. DeAndre Ayton, DeAndre Ayton quit on his team. He's quit on his team multiple times. And I know you can say, well, he's got an issue with the head coach in Monty Williams. I don't want any part of him. I don't, I think right now that guy is, to use the KOC terminology from earlier in the pod, he's a losing player. Okay. Yeah. I want no part of DeAndre Ayton. Yeah. I, I think those two guys probably aren't the solution, but I do think something that's maybe not being talked about enough is the fact that Horford's going to be, what, 38 years old and he's playing. Yeah. 30 plus minutes a game like that's just not going to work next year so yeah you got to fill you, those minutes somewhere yeah you do need to add another big and that's Maybe why Gallinari. I was, yeah well that's why I was interested with the Kongwu part uh Kongwu mm -hmm. part of the trade that Pina had where he's coming over with Murray as well that's why I was really interested with that because it's Rob insurance he plays more similarly to Rob in terms of 
he's a role man. But it's a good point on the Sabonis front. Like Sabonis and Tatum, even though Sabonis has issues in the postseason, that offense would be drunk during the regular season. And can you imagine Derek White, too, flying off those handoffs? That would be a really, really good offense in terms of what you could do. And look, all these teams have their flaws in terms of a couple of guys. So you could figure out how to play around a, a, a Sabonis. But I just don't think that that deal would be on the table from Sacramento's aspect. No, no I, 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 Celtics, I don't see why they'd want Brown and Fox together versus Sabonis and Fox. I feel like that's a better fit. Yeah. And with now Murray, who showed some stuff in the postseason after he wasn't playing well, then all of a sudden, like Mike Brown apparently got into him and he started hitting his threes at the end of that Warriors series. Like, I would like that's a really good offense. Obviously, there's maybe some changes you would want to make there. But, man, I would have a tough time pulling the trigger on that if I'm Sacramento. And maybe I'm too close to the Jalen situation, right? Just because I know like his flaws as a player. Maybe they would be more intrigued with it than I would. But. I, I, I don't see Sacramento doing that deal, but it's a good idea. I mean, definitely a good idea to bring in a Sabonis. I mean, that's, that guy's a freaking beast. No, as KOC said, he's got, uh, Brad Stevens needs to start working the phone, see what he can do. Yeah, it's it's going to be a compelling offseason for Brad, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Brian, talk soon. All right, remember, if you want to get an email in, that's pike at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail as well at... You can leave us a voicemail as well at 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan, who you just heard from, and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days.